invite you to turn this morning in your Bible to Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful book. Now chapter 28 we're going to see is quite different than what we've been reading. It's a very much a change of pace. People have called it an intermission. And uh, so it, it's, it's quiet, it's reflective after all the angry speeches. It comes at the end of the round of uh, speeches that Job, between Job and his friends. So they've all had their say, and Job has had his say. There will be no more speeches. Um, Job will have one more speech, but his friends will not be heard from him. And uh, after Job's final speech, then we'll, we'll hear Elihu and then uh, the Lord God himself. And so it's a, it's a break in the book. And it has, uh, many say, that, and I believe the central message of the book is found here in chapter 28. Let's give our attention then to God's word this morning. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley of, away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the places of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not in me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning or the, of the thunder, then He saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh, Lord our God, this morning we come again to deep things and we 
I just pray that your spirit would give us the ability to understand these things. And Lord, that we would understand that you are speaking to us, to our life, today, by your spirit and through Christ, that we might be instructed and edified and trust in you. And so Lord, we ask now for your blessing to be upon us as we open your word. Give us ears to hear it, hearts to believe it. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as you know, last week, uh, Sunday morning, if you were a resident of Midland, um, it was just another Sunday morning. And the town of Midland was the way, well, that it always was. A gentle Midwestern town with some nearby lakes ta- uh, connected by a meandering uh, river, the Titabawasi, the it's hard to say, river. Um, and, uh, and, and that was life as you knew it. But then the great uh, rainstorms came and the dams collapsed and the lakes vanished and the town of Midland is now, one week later, a disaster area. Well, Job's life was like that. Uh, Job was living a normal, good life, surrounded by his loving family, enjoying God's good gifts, worshiping the Lord as he knew him and believed in him. And then it seemed like the dam broke and all of God's wrath and the powers of hell were unleashed on his life and his life was in a moment just swept away. Gone, never to return in the sense that his children uh, were taken away. All that was left, uh, as we find Job in here in the book of Job, is, is Job on an ash heap, uh, scraping his sores and asking the question, why? Why has God done this? And the answers of his friends were profoundly unsatisfying, uh, unsatisfactory, Uh, Because they had a simple formula. God is doing this because you've sinned. But Job had not sinned. And so the question remains. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your own life. This this great upending. Uh, The order of your life was overturned by some great tragedy. Some great loss. Or a deep betrayal or deadly disease. And then you can mark your life with a, a before and an after. Or maybe you are just overwhelmed at, uh, by the difficulty of normal life in a fallen world. Uh, there's so much brokenness. There's so much loss. There's so much confusion. There's so much pain. There's, so much, there's, there's hunger and, 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 the, and racism and, um, and ignorance and greed and sin, perversion. And things don't work as they should. Your body doesn't work as it should. And, and uh, maybe your, your, your career is... is off the, off the rails. Uh, your family isn't working as it should. Everything seems broken. And, and you might wonder, why does it have to be this way? Why does God allow these things? How can we make sense of all this? And making sense of things is very important to us. You maybe have noticed that about yourself in these last months. Uh, it will radically affect how you respond to trials. For example, if the governor's orders these uh, past months seem reasonable to you, 
uh, then you will readily embrace them. You might not like them, but it will, be, it will not be a, a challenge to embrace them. But if the orders seem unreasonable, if they seem random, if you can't make sense of them, you're going to find this to be a very frustrating time. Maybe uh, you've even become bitter and angry, resentful. And it all depends on whether you've been able to make sense in your mind of, of the orders she's giving or they don't make sense to you at all. See, we, the, the fact is that whatever side of that line on which you might fall, the fact is that we all are the same in that um, we all find it a lot easier to submit to orders or to realities when it makes sense to us. We're rational, we're rational and reasonable people. And uh, all we ask is that our governing authorities make rational and reasonable demands. It doesn't seem like that big of an ask. We ask the same of our co-workers and our boss. We're willing to do things, just be rational, just be reasonable, just make sense. But you see, friends, God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. If you need to be able to understand God's reasons before you can be at peace in them, if you need to know the why before you can be content, if you have to have the, all the purposes of the trial figure out before you can give joy in it, well, you're going to be a severely frustrated Christian. Because God will do things and is doing things in our lives that do not and will not make sense to us. And he does not and will not give us the answers. Just as he never gave Job the answers, ever. What he does is calls us to trust him and obey him in the dark. And that is wisdom. And so what we have here in chapter 28 is um, really the, the heart of the book in some ways. It is, um, at least it, it shows us, it, it, it deals with the topic of wisdom. Job is part of wisdom literature in scripture. Um, it, it's, um, it's showing us how to uh, live a life that is, that is meaningful and, and valuable and, and gives glory to God. As I said, it's a unique chapter. It functions as an intermission of sorts. We've had these exhausting speeches between Job and his friends, and now we have this reflective, quiet intermission um, structured around the question, where is wisdom to be found? It's asked twice, verse 12 and 20, and it, and it uh, holds the chapter together. It's one of the most fundamental questions in life. It's a question, unfortunately, uh, people aren't asking. We'll see why in a moment. But it's an essential question. What is the point of life? What's it all about? What is the foundational organizing principle, the overarching meta-narrative meta that would allow us to make sense of the experiences of our life? What is the answer to the question, why? Where can wisdom be found? Well, to, to, to begin to enter into this, we just have to take a little time to understand the meaning of the word wisdom. It's not just being bright, smart, clever, really not about that much at all. The Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, and its essential meaning is skill. 
So we um, find the word used in Exodus to, to describe the women and the craftsmen who were uh, called to um, sew together the beautiful tapestries and to create the beautiful furniture for the tabernacle. So their wisdom involves this, this high degree of, of artistic ability and craftsmanship that results in beautiful works of art. And so I think a, a, a biblical working definition of wisdom would be um, a high degree of knowledge and understanding and skill that results in something of beauty and value and worth. Let me say it one more time. Wisdom is a high degree of knowledge and understanding and skill that results in something of beauty and value and worth. One of the things that we love about great art, maybe a great painting or great music, symphony, whatever it might be, uh, one, of the thing, one of the reasons we delight in that is, be, is be, because we delight in the unique ability that some people have to create these, um, just to create beauty. I, I find that when I see a great painting or, or hear a, um, a great piece of music, I not only enjoy the art, I envy the artist. I'm sure you've done the same. Wouldn't it be great to be able to paint like Rembrandt or um, pick your favorite artist? Can you imagine what it would be like to sing one song like Pavarotti? Just one song. And there doesn't need to be anybody in the audience. Just to stand on the stage of the Met in an empty place and just fill it with one perfect, beautiful song. What would that be like? It would be incredible. Some of you maybe have been paying attention to the documentary The Last Dance, story of Michael Jordan, the basketball player. Uh, he was idolized around the world. Why? Because he could do things on a basketball court that no one had ever seen done before. He was the Beethoven of basketball. A craftsman with unparalleled skill. But here's the question for us this morning. How do you create a beautiful life? How do you take all the various strands and jumbled threads of your life, all the things that make you you, all the realities of your abilities and deficiencies and opportunities and failures? I mean, how do you take all the stuff that makes you you and weave it together, that uh, your life, so that it's beautiful. It's worthy. It has value and weight and significance and meaning. How do you create a life like that? A life of deep value and lasting worth that's worthy to be displayed in the heavenly tabernacle of God. You see, isn't, isn't this what we secretly want? Don't you want to be great? Don't you want your life to be something meaningful and weighty and worthy and beautiful? Of course you do. Why do little girls want to be seen as pretty and little boys want to be seen as fast and strong and brave? 
Because they want to be great. They want their little life to matter. They want, they want to be affirmed as uh, significant and valuable. And they can't help it. You see, our native land is the Garden of Eden. And we, we sense that beauty and value and worth are somehow wrapped into our purpose. And we long for it and grieve its loss. And, and, uh, and we live, you see, then with this, with this sense that we're made for so much more. But how do you attain to something more? And the world offers all sorts of suggestions. I read an interesting article uh, regarding the movie, uh, the documentary, The Last Stand, <laughs> Last Dance. And, um, and he said, in, in, in two of the figures, Jordan and Rodman, Rodman, Dennis Rodman, you really have the sort of the old way of doing life and then the new postmodern way of doing life. So Michael Jordan, the answer to the question, how do you attain a, the good life, is be great. That's Jordan's answer. Rodman's answer is be yourself. And that, that is, so the, the article said Rodman is the first um, uh, sort of icon of postmodern nihilistic self-expressionism. Right, when Rodman first came out with green hair, everybody thought he'd lost his mind. Now it's just, it's just another flavor. But you say be great or be yourself, but neither of those approaches work. Not if you're trying to build a beautiful, meaningful, weighty, significant, honor-worthy life. And hence the urgency of the question, where can wisdom be found? We sense we're made for something more. But where do you find the skill to weave the one life that you have to live? You just get one. And how do you weave that one life into something approved by God and worthy for His affirmation? That's the question. Where can that be found? Well, Job begins the discussion with a uh, discourse on mining. Uh, there's a place for silver and gold and iron and copper, but it is a hidden place. Uh, you got to go uh, search out to the farthest limit. Uh, you got to look for the ore and gloom and deep darkness. A uh, man opens shafts in, valley, in a valley far away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. And so Job is just bringing us into this hidden world of mining where, where people disappear and go into the deepest, darkest places, the hidden places. A mind is a hidden world, just like wisdom is a hidden world. But people eagerly go there because there are treasures there. Verse 6, its stones are the places of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. And so in a, in a hungry search for riches, verse 9, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. That's how committed he is uh, in his pursuit of riches. People will go to great, uh, great efforts, uh, great lengths, great deal of human ingenuity goes into digging, finding those treasures and digging them out of the ground. But where shall wisdom be found? Verse 12. That's the million dollar question. Where do you go to find the treasures of godliness. 
Where do you go to find the jewel of inner beauty? Where do you get the sapphire of moral strength? Where do you find that? And where's the place of understanding? Where do you go to learn how to make sense of all the chaos brought about by evil and the curse? Where is the overarching uh, meta-narrative that answers the question, why? Where is that place? You see, this is, this is a key part of Job's struggle. His life has been utterly upended, eviscerated by God. And it does not make sense to him. And he cannot rest. He needs to find out why. He needs to have a conversation with God and present his case and then hear God's case. Because this does not make sense. And if gaining that wisdom, you see, if it were just something that it just took some human ingenuity and skill, like mining, well, Job would do it. You know he would do it. But wisdom isn't like that. It can't be found that way. There are great and insurmountable obstacles to finding wisdom. And Job speaks of them, beginning of verse 13 and following. These obstacles, one being wisdom isn't valued. Man does not know its worth. How do you know what people value? Well, just, just watch what they go searching for. Uh, what, what they're committed to. You see, people eagerly look for things that they value, things like pleasure, things like um, a desired relationship, but they will hunt for money, they will labor for fame, because those are the things they value. But people don't understand the value of wisdom. They don't know its worth. And the evidence is seen in how little um, effort or thought they give to pursuing it. But even if they did value it, even if they correctly understood that this is of infinite worth, they, they couldn't afford it precisely for that reason. It's of infinite value. Verse 15, it cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. You can't afford it. You, can't, you can take all the wealth of the world. You, you cannot buy wisdom. But even if you could buy wisdom, where would you go to purchase it? Where do you find it? You see, it can't be found on earth. Verse 13, it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it's not in me. Verse 22, Abaddon and death say, we've we heard a rumor of it with our ears. I had a brother who worked with a guy whose sister had a cousin whose husband had heard something about it. A rumor, faint thought. Abaddon and, and death, or uh, Abaddon is another word for Sheol. So, so Job is saying that um, the dead speak to us about these things. And they testify that after all the life that they lived, after all, after all their loves and labors, all their experiences, all their joys and trials, all that they were able to accomplish, all, everything that makes up their life, at the end of it all, the best they have to offer is, we heard a rumor that there's such a thing as wisdom. 
Wisdom cannot be found on earth. All we have here under the sun is the rumor of it. And it's the rumor that haunts us. This is an area I think where C.S. Lewis is just so helpful, so good. Uh, where Lewis just points out that we have these longings for something more. We sense we're made for something greater. C.S. Lewis says this, most people know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some uh, topic that excites us, they are longings which no marriage, no travel, and no learning can really satisfy. It can't be found under the sun. And yet we've heard the rumor, all of us, we've sensed that there's something more. We're made for something greater. There must be something that's able to make us beautiful and whole. But the search seems hopeless. Vanity, vanity, right? The writer of Ecclesiastes. Everything under the sun is vanity. But the good news of Scripture is that everything under the sun does not um, make up everything. There is a God who is not under the sun. A God who made all things. And Job points us to him. God knows the way to wisdom. Verse 23, God understands the way to it. He knows its place. It, it exists. It is, it, is, uh, it is not lost. The answer to all your questions and, and the secret to a life of beauty and value and weight and meaning is found in God. You just need to look up. Look to God. Wisdom dwells with Him. And so the, the question then is, well, great. What do I need to do to get it? If that's where it's found, what do I need to do to go and get that? Well, God tells us how to find it. How to, how to find it. He said to man, verse 28, he said to man, God speaks. Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. That might seem anticlimactic to you. It might sound religious, it might sound like duty, like work. Like, try harder. If you're suffering some deep heartache, some devastating hardship, or just weary from the, the, the toil, the grind of normal life, this just might feel unhelpful. It's not what you were looking for. But I beg you to pay attention. Ash says in his commentary that how we respond to this verse is a litmus test for our hearts. We have to think about what does it mean to fear the Lord? It's a, it's a concept that we quickly import uh, words like danger, um, terror, fright. And those are not inappropriate when it comes to God. Right? In Isaiah chapter 8, I believe, it says, let the Lord be your dread. Don't, don't fear what people fear. Let the Lord be your dread. So that's part of it. God is not a tame lion, as Lewis will say. Aslan is not tame, but he's good. He's good. And that's a critical part of this. I like the definition given by Sinclair Ferguson. The fear of God is really another way of saying knowing God. It is a heartfelt love for him because of who he is and what he has done. A sense of being in his majestic presence. 
It is a thrilling awareness that we have this greatest of all privileges mingled with a realization that now the only thing that really matters is his opinion. Not the opinion of other people, not primarily the opinion of your parents or your spouse, your children, your boss. But the opinion of God, that becomes what matters. What matters more than anything? What does God think? What does God say? Of me, of you. And to turn away from evil is understanding. It's what you do when you know and love God. And you, and you know and love his glory. And you value his opinion. But let's now apply this to the, to the story of Job and to the story of those who suffer. Tim Keller asked the question, what does the fear of the Lord mean in the presence of suffering? A good question. What does the fear... What does the fear of the Lord mean in in the context of suffering? Because that's the context that we find this verse. And Keller answers this way. It means scary level, unconditional trust in the love of God in the midst of the darkness. The fear of the Lord is scary level, unconditional trust that God is loving you even though it doesn't feel that way. That God is loving you even though everything around you seems dark. I heard a story, uh, a man tell a story of a young woman who uh, had some of her friends over to her house for the afternoon. Uh, her husband was uh, in the military away uh, serving in Vietnam. And as she was uh, chatting and enjoying the company of her friends, a knock came on the front door and the message was delivered that he or her uh, beloved husband had been killed in action. She covered her face and ran to the bedroom and closed the door. Her friends made their way slowly to the door, seeking to comfort her, but they stopped when they heard her talking. And they heard her saying over and over and over, Oh, my father. Oh, my father. Oh, my father. That's the fear of the Lord. In her darkest moment, she turned to her loving Heavenly Father and cast herself upon Him, trusting the Lord in the dark. You see, friends, this is the profound truth of the verse, that wisdom isn't found in an answer that will make sense of your life. Wisdom is found in a person, God Himself, as the Savior and Lord of your life. Ash says, God does not take us by the hand and lead us to the answers. Rather, he beckons us to bow before the Lord himself, who knows the answers, but chooses not to tell us. For his own good purposes, and to lead us in faith. My friend, this morning, let me ask you, what are you looking for from God in life? What do you want from God? You see, many self-professed Christians are actually looking for um, God to be the key that will make life in this world work. That God will be the key that, that gives them the good life. And to those people, when they hear, fear the Lord and turn from evil, that means, well, you need to be respectful of God. You need to keep your nose clean, go to church, live a, live a good Christian life. And God will bless you with a good 
more or less pain-free life. It's a deal that they sort of subconsciously make with God. They're willing to do this part if God will do His part. I think it's very common for all of us to feel that way. And the evidence that that has been the nature of our relationship with God, that we sort of formed a deal with Him, that we'll, we'll, we'll be religious or we'll be Christian, we'll, we'll believe in Him if He's willing to help us uh, have a good life, the evidence is seen in how we respond to loss and tragedy. To the degree that your Christian life has been about making a deal with God is the degree of bitterness you will feel when God causes you to suffer. And you'll struggle, you'll struggle to find comfort from God and be tempted to feel betrayed by God because he didn't keep up his end of the bargain. If there's anything that the book of Job teaches us is that fearing God and shunning evil is not the path to the good life. Job was the poster boy for fearing God and shunning evil. God himself said this of him. And yet he still ended up scraping his decaying flesh on the ash heap of his devastated life. So how do you make sense of that? I don't know all the ways you do that, but I, I, I do know this. I'm absolutely confident of this. That you, when you and I get to heaven and we have our chance to talk to Job, he will tell you that his suffering, as painful and incomprehensible as it was, was good for him. Why? Because it deepened his knowledge of God. Remember what he says after God appears? He says, I heard you, I heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen him, have seen you. God, God took Job to a whole new level of understanding and thus uh, a whole new level of intimacy with God. He never got the answers to his questions. He got something inestimably better. He got the knowledge of God. He got to know and commune with God. You see, the wisdom that makes sense of your life and brings beauty to your life is not found in knowing the answers. It's found in knowing the author. And the glorious gospel message is that God has come to earth so that we can know the author. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, Paul writes, And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So God has wisdom. God is wise. God knows the place of wisdom. And God has given us that wisdom in Jesus Christ. He became our wisdom. In Colossians 2, 3, Paul, speaking of Christ, says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom has a name, Jesus, and, and in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that means that in Jesus we find irrefutable reasons to trust our Heavenly Father in the dark. Because he gave his Son for us when we were in our sin. And if God loved us so much when we were rebels to his cause, how much more can we trust him now that we are his own blood-bought children? Jesus is our wisdom. He makes sense. He helps us to make sense. Not to fully understand. We couldn't possibly. But to understand enough to trust. But not only that, Jesus is at work. To 
in his own infinite wisdom and skill, you see, to, to craft something beautiful out of your life. One of the greatest frustrations of being a person living in a fallen world is that frustration that somehow, and every person struggles with this, somehow we were made for something more, something great, something good, something valuable, something meaningful and significant. And then you look at the life you actually live. And it seems so utterly insignificant. What's the significance of just a few short years that you, you, you struggle through and maybe the little job that you have? Maybe you think it's a big deal now, but when you retire, you're going to realize it. It's not that big a deal. And people are not going to remember. It just seems so insignificant. But see, the gospel comes with wisdom from God that, that Jesus um, gave his blood to, to make us people of, of, of such value and worth to God as children of God. That's who we are. And he's at work to make us into a display of the splendor and glory of God. Your, your life right now might look like a tangled web of threads and, and, and strands that are just wandering off. There's no rhyme or reason to any of it. But you see, what you're just looking at the backside of the tapestry. Have you, have you ever looked at a tapestry? At the backside, it, just, it doesn't look like much at all. It's just blobs maybe of color and, 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 and pieces of thread. But then you turn it around. You see, right now we're just looking at the backside. It's all we can see. But Jesus, we trust, is weaving. Every thread, every pain, every trial, every good gift is perfectly placed by our Heavenly Father and by the wisdom of Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom of God, the skilled artist with all knowledge and understanding who is um, with, with perfect ability and skill weaving something glorious and beautiful and worthy worthy with the threads of your life for the glory of God. If the gospel tells us not only that we are saved, but that we're made beautiful and valuable and worthy by Jesus Christ, by the power of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, in the exact details of your life, as you fear God and shun evil, as you trust him and commit your way to him. It's an old song by the Gaithers. Something beautiful, something good, all my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. But he made, I would say he is making something beautiful of my life. Friend, that's a gospel promise. Remember what John says, 1 John chapter 3? That we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. And friends, I just would call you today to trust then the work of God and, 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 and lift your eyes from the tangled mess of your life and lift it up to God. That's where wisdom is found. Commit your way to Him. Trust Him. Believe what He tells you is true. And in the confidence of, of these gospel promises, then, then, then live 
believing that God is making something that only he can see, but one day, one day we'll be able to see the masterpiece that Jesus was creating, not about us, not for our glory, all for the glory of God. But it will be your life. You will be the display of his splendor. You will be affirmed by God. You will be one more display in his heavenly holy tabernacle. All of it redounding to the glory of God. Your life in Jesus Christ is destined for that. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, uh, we feel our weakness, we feel our frailty, our, the passing nature of our life. And we feel the frustration of the brokenness and the sin that's around us and in us. But our hearts are hungry, Lord, to matter and to be useful and valuable, to be worthy, significant in your presence, for your glory, for your cause. Father, I thank you so much that in Jesus Christ, you've rescued us from wasting this one life that we have and from spending eternity in loss. But instead, Lord God, you've called us to Jesus Christ. You've made us his workmanship. And he is the perfect craftsman. And he is building and crafting, creating something in our life that will redound forever to your glory by his power, in his grace. So Lord, I pray that we would live as people who are destined for glory and we would live as people who know and love God. That we would stop looking for the answers, but we would be hungry for the author. That we'd be content, Lord, to know you, to fear you, to turn from evil because you hate it. And when we sin, to confess it, but to know that in all of it, God, you are sufficient to present us one day without spot and with great joy in the presence of God. Do that work. And Father, if there be any here this, this morning that have heard this message and do not know Jesus Christ as their wisdom, I pray, oh God, that they would today realize that their only hope for, for salvation and redemption and for meaning and beauty is in Jesus Christ. And that they would bow today in confession and faith. And we'll give you the thanks, oh God, because you alone are worthy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.